Hey, this is Gina Grad. Hi, this is Teresa Strasser. Hi, everyone. This is Mike Errico. Hey there. This is Casey Cavalier. I'm Rocky Rose. And you are listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Lucky you. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show. A behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, hello and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi, and if you are new here, this is where we take a deep dive into the entertainment industry to provide you with valuable insights and entertaining stories. This week, we get to talk with a musician, a producer, and a composer. We get to talk with Asher Lobb. We'll talk to him about how he got a start as a violinist, what it's like to play in some of the world's largest venues, and we'll take a deep dive into his production process. Now, Asher has taken an unconventional approach to the industry, and I can't wait to discuss that with him tonight. So, if you'd like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfranzi.com. Now let's get started. Asher, sir, how are you? Pretty good. How are you? I am very good, sir. I'm very excited for tonight. I've been looking forward to this. It's good to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. I know you had a very, very early start in the music industry, so can you explain to us how that became? Well, I started in diapers. It was (laughs) um, something I remember like it was pretty much yesterday, and it was pretty much I started playing the violin at the age of about two and change on a little margarine box with rubber band serving as strings. And uh, that was something that not only I don't, I don't say my mother supported, she encouraged it. Uh, she claims that I looked up to my older brother and said, hey, I want to do that. He was playing concertos. He's about six years older than me. And I pretty much was born on stage uh, doing the Suzuki method taking private lessons on a weekly basis and uh, just generally a more intensive upbringing in music than you would normally expect from like your average kind of family. And ironically, without the, in- with the intention of having me not actually do it professionally, which is odd enough <laughs> surprise, but here I am 20 years under my belt, having done about 2000 plus performances, very much a full-time musician. So I don't think my parents should be surprised, even if it wasn't their intention. (laughs) Well, that's insane. I mean, do you actually have any memories that go back that far? I have, I have memories as well. I don't know if they're accurate, but in my mind's eye, they seem clear as anything. Fond memories, like nostalgic kind of feeling whenever I just kind of picture myself with that instrument and just playing the Suzuki method, even though I know at the time, like how exciting, how, how much fun could it have been playing Mississippi, Mississippi hot dog or just the scales? I don't know. Maybe I just, I look back at it with fondness, but you know, it's, it's not something like drums, guitar, that's those types of instruments are more, I would say a, a young kid would gravitate towards not so much a violin to be honest. Right. Well, that's, that's kind of cool. I mean, at what age was it where you were actually able to go out and perform? 
So I was doing performances. Well, I guess it depends on how you define a performance. I wasn't paid to perform until I was about 18, but I was doing large scale performances with orchestras, Greater Buffalo Youth String Orchestra, Greater Buffalo Youth Orchestra, on NISMA competitions, all state, pretty much New York statewide uh, performances in front of like five, six, 700 people on a monthly basis. So there's something I was literally born into. So I start, you know, there are pictures of me playing in playing Suzuki performances, probably not very exciting or ticket worthy at the age of maybe four or five. And, um, you know, sort of progressed from there. My first like big show was with about age 13. And then when I was in high school, I started playing with jazz bands and then things started to get interesting. Well, before you get to that part, let me ask you, I mean, obviously somebody has to make that connection for you. I mean, you're a young kid. You're not out there networking yourself. So how does that connection come about? Is it your family helping you out? So, yeah, my, my parents were paying for private lessons and had and were paying for me to be enrolled in these different, you know, GBYO, GBYSO organizations to sort of make connections and to have the opportunity to play or these audiences and, and just it was a lot of pressure to say the least, but uh, <laughs> it was driven and it was just sort of part of my life and all my peers were in music also. A lot of them went off to Juilliard and all these other schools, except for me. I actually wasn't planning on making a music career. So I went off to get a bio degree <laughs> to New York, but ironically I was the one who was working in music while my friends were, you know, slaving away uh, in class and learning about music theory <laughs> And eventually ended up teaching, whereas I'm, I'm uh, kind of making this full-time career playing concerts and, and weddings and corporate events. Well, tell us about that. How does that come about? So that's, I, oddly enough, that was not parent-driven. So once it was parent-driven up until about 10th, 11th grade, 11th, 12th grade. Okay. And then I, you know, I, I was accepted to University of New York, went to YU and then NYU. And I was thinking, how am I going to pay the bills? Uh, how am I going to be able to, you know, take out girls and uh, I don't know, uh, for pay for my cell phone and clothes and so forth. So the easiest thing for me was to just uh, send in applications to send in tapes to uh, different bands and say, hey, like, this is what I can do. I can improvise. I got an instrument. I can, you know, sight read, so on and so forth. And uh, I was accepted uh, by a couple bands and I just filled my dates. I sat in a couple times, but filled my dates pretty quickly within, you know, freshman year. When you say bands, what genre are we talking about? So when you're playing weddings, uh, you kind of have to be a jack of all trades. You got to, you know, you're playing classical, really whatever clients want are requesting, but um, rock, jazz. I mean, you got to know the, 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 you know, we're doing fusion. I was just playing with all sorts of um, other musicians who were way better than me. It was actually pretty intimidating, especially in the beginning. So yeah, the whole gamut. So you got involved in the wedding circuit, which is how you were meeting these bands and getting involved. That's where it started. That's how you, you make a living for sure. So now just out of curiosity, your friends that went on to Juilliard, are they working in the industry? Well, some of them are. The, some of the best musicians I could have you could have possibly met at my age who were winning all these competitions. I was thinking, you are, you're going to be like the next Itzhak Perlman and Gil Shaham and Yo-Yo Ma. They, they, they didn't do it. They, they went into like insurance and like teaching. And I'm like, I, people don't understand the talent 
that <laughs> that uh, some you know these people that were my peers, I had the privilege of just just knowing them and playing along with them. It's a little sad. <laughs> I don't even know if they know that I do what I do, but uh, it's just funny how things. Right. Man plans, God laughs. Is, is you know right. The mantra. I laugh is I spent just over 20 years in Nashville and the saying was that everybody was a songwriter. So if you were looking for an apartment, the person showing you the apartment would be a songwriter. If you were at a restaurant, the, the wait staff would be songwriters. Everybody would be a songwriter. Yeah. And they would. They may have even sold some popular songs, but they're still showing apartments. They're still waiting on tables. Sometimes it's just the the luck of the draw, I guess. Just to throw in a little thing, a little add-on to what you're saying, I, I actually I hadn't thought about this in a, a number of years. About ten years ago, I met some some of the, like the leading performers uh, on Broadway. It was a little depressing to sort of see them doing wait, you know, to be waiters at like corporate events that I was playing. Right. Just at random points, I would meet them at different events. Uh, they just keep popping up, and I, my heart would go out to them because they're they're working as hard as they can and they have talent clearly to be on Broadway, but it's just not enough. Let's talk about Buffalo. You said you had a chance to, to play with them for a little while. What was that like? Uh, pretty unforgettable and, uh, an opportunity I, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful for. What age was that? I, I was, yeah, I was around 13. Uh, I, I should probably post some photos. I keep mentioning this. Uh, my mother, she keeps popping up. these. <laughs> these memories and she brings them from home whenever she visits. And, uh, I haven't looked back on that in a while, but yeah, trying to remember the world symphony was an orchestra. I played with later on at Lincoln center. And that was, that was probably more exciting for me. Cause I don't know. The, the, the performance was more exciting. It was more like a rock type performance as opposed to traditional classical, which was, what I was entrenched in as a, as a child up until 18. So like the purpose of every performance was Bach, Beethoven, you know, a little more contemporary classical. So what was it like for you? Were you nervous when you first started doing it? Definitely nervous to play a client. I think it was Klein Ends Music Hall uh, with the Public Philharmonic. But generally, I mean, I don't remember shaking, but I do remember being relatively nervous just going out onto stage. And I kind of grew into it. Once I started playing with weddings, wedding bands, and then corporate events, it got, it became a lot more, um, I guess, seamless for me to just get up on stage and just feel confident. I don't, I think because there was nobody else that was like me doing what I was doing, which is basically improv, improv violin. So, even the weddings, how old were you doing the weddings? About 18, 19. That's when it started. And obviously, I mean, when you're dealing with a wedding, I am married. I know what it's like to plan a wedding. I know people take that stuff very serious. So, I mean, did you feel the pressure of performing at weddings? Not, not much. Not the way I used to as a kid playing classical music. I don't know why exactly. It could have just been that I was younger could just been that my ego it started to inflate when I moved to New York and I was just thinking like how can I just how can I just get out there and play the, play all these big shows and get a name for myself that's possibly what was going on it sort of helps to calm the nerves when 
you're in that state of mind. Now that my eco has deflated a little bit as I've matured, uh, I guess I guess I'm a little more sensitive when I get out on stage. I don't know. Funny things, funny things happen um, happen on stage you wouldn't really expect. So, what did you learn from your time playing at weddings? Um, to be really well prepared <laughs> when it comes to the music, so you don't make an ass of yourself. Uh, there you go. So prep is pretty important. Know your music and know how to how to kind of shimmy your way out of out of a mess if if something goes down that you're not expecting. And that's happened a few times. And that's where improv comes in pretty handy to understand chord progressions. It's pretty helpful, you know, if if you happen to be in a situation where you're sight reading and somebody skips a beat, misses a bar or measure, but you're hearing the chord progression, you can you can get your way out of that mess pretty quickly, pretty pretty uh, seamlessly. So those are little tricks of the trade that I've I've learned over time. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. You're playing weddings, which obviously you're playing multiple genres of music because of that. How much of it do you find to be improv versus playing to a sheet of music? Depends on the event. Uh, I'm doing more improv now than ever because what I'm doing now is I could see some people criticizing me for what I'm saying, but it's more sh- uh, showcasing. It's more of like a performance, like a show as opposed to just reading sheet music, which could also be a show if you think about it, you know, if you're going to see the Philharmonic, but, but I'm not doing traditional classical as much. I'm doing more kind of like, for instance, my single Miserly that I released, like that's a, that's a show piece. It's a classical piece, but it's like a rock classical type of piece. So let's talk about that for a minute. You're making that transition. Let's start with the the transition itself. How do you transition from doing classical to doing more improv? So it starts. So so the the best way to to do that is to listen to improv. So I, I spent a lot of time listening to like John Luc Ponty, Joe Venuti, like jazz violinists, just famous uh, jazz groups, Chick Corea and you know, whole slew of those, those amazing uh, performers. But, but then obviously you need to sort of transcribe and, and rehearse those, those licks, those lines. And then you're just sort of able to, at that point, I guess, uh, extrapolate from like certain chord progressions into others. So it could be overwhelming thinking like, Oh God, how do I, like, if you listen to Chick Corea, for instance, it just sounds like a whole flurry of notes. It's not as scary uh, if you sort of isolate, isolate a few bars at a time, and then you learn just you just memorize a few songs, and then over time you're able to sort of tr- you know, translate that to other songs, and the brain sort of just does it automatically. It's hard to sort of explain. It's not an exact science. More like you feel, you feel where your fingers should go, for lack of a better way to describe it. Yeah, no, I can understand that for sure. So you said you, you released the single, you go in the studio to record it. Is it produced by somebody else or are you producing it yourself? Well, Neon Dreams, probably my biggest single to date, is something I produced with an electronic, like an EDM producer based in Europe. It was a number of years ago. You know, I did the strings, I did a couple of other add-ons, but he did the basic structure. And it just worked out pretty well. The song pretty much wrote itself. Since then, I've been producing a lot of my own music because I've been honestly disappointed with a lot of the producers 
that are like vetted producers that I, I have, I've booked and I just realized that I need to sort of take more control of the, of the end product and not just depend on the violin. So, so things have evolved since, since the neon dream era. Well, let's talk about the production for a second. When you're talking about producers, there's multiple types of producers. You got the producers that you would typically see in Nashville where they take a uh, group of musicians into a studio and kind of direct, direct everybody on what to do. And then you've got producers who actually program music, assuming that the person that you were working with originally programmed music. Is that the type of production you find yourself doing now, or are you actually bringing in musicians into a studio? So I do occasionally bring musicians into a studio, especially if I'm doing a collaboration. And that's something I'd like to do a little more of. Uh, my studio is not a, you know, isn't fit for an entire orchestra. <laughs> you know, maybe I could fit 10 musicians in there, uh, maybe a small band something I need to expand, <laughs> but, uh, the, the, the production that, you know, the neon dream producer that I was working with, he was obviously using midis and I, I do, I do a lot of that stuff myself now, although I still invite producers to work with me. I like to get other people involved and it, it helps to me, me to expand sort of my, my skills and just my knowledge base. And, um, generally I'm happy with the product. When it comes to, to orchestral music, sadly, uh, I'm, I'm not able to use a full orchestra. Uh, and I can kind of bring in a harpist here and there. Um, I'm a live violinist, but the, the keyboardist, the piano, is, tends to be me, unless it's like a really complicated line, like in Miserloo. I will bring in a third-party pianist that I really admire. So, yeah, there's just a whole whole mix, mishmash, depending on what, what the release is that I'm working on. Right. Productions themselves can can take all sorts of shapes and sizes. I mean, that's the the beauty of the industry. And it's also the change that the industry is going through, whether we used to record, and we still do, we record the big string sections in studios like Ocean Way in Nashville. It's a old church that's been turned into a recording studio and just got the most wonderful sounding room. So when we're recording strings, we like to go into rooms like that. Hmm. However, if we were just recording one piece, say you were to come in and play a violin, then we could just take you into, you know, our control room and mic you up and just put some treatment around you for that particular session. There's just different levels of what you're doing and how many people are going to be involved. I mean, obviously, like you said, I could never fit 30 people in this room, but if I go to Ocean Way, I can easily fit 30 people in and have extreme amount of room to spare. So it's yeah. just interesting to hear everybody's different approaches and how they do it. But you're also composing the music. So when you're composing something, are you doing that before anybody else is involved? Um, so that also depends. Uh, I just I just produced a song, Little Things. Uh, I'm going to feel guilty about talking about a song that I am not releasing uh, until it is sync licensed. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's something that I've shared with like a few, a few people that just to get their opinion. So that is something that I actually contacted a, a keyboardist, a pianist to sort of lay out the structure for me to give me inspiration. Uh, I didn't want to get it. I didn't want to get it from like a computer program or even for myself. I just wanted somebody to like, give me an idea. 
I, and I sort of gave them a reference, but it, it, ter- it turned out to be different than that reference, but it just sort of gave me a starting point and him a starting point. And it came back and it was different, but, and I was thinking this sounds pretty cool. And then I started laying down my melody on the violin, which is typically what I do next. And uh, I wasn't too happy. And I was thinking I'm, I'm going to set it back and ask him to like change up the melodies and, um, and just like the, the arpeggiation, whatever. So what I did was I actually, I gave it a second shot. I showed it to my wife. I'm like, what do you think? And she said, uh, it needs a little work here. There's a little work there. So I, so I thought long story short, I went back and I, I added some strings and then I changed up the melody that I'd laid down. I realized that I was the problem, not the pianist. <laughs> and cause it turned out to be one of the most beautiful melodies. And I just, just completed it this past week that I think I've ever written and it's not necessarily like a song that that is is like a catchy top 40s tune, but it's like this sentimental tune that really belongs in a film. And I'm very excited to like pitch it to a music library. And I guess this is the first time I've talked about it on the show, uh, Little Things. So it's, it's right now in my sync library on my website. So people are, are able to check it out, but it's not going to be released to other platforms probably for another five or six months. Anyway. Well, see, now you have to put it all together because you talked about it. Yeah, well, it's there. It's there for people to hear it, so got to give me that credit. Yeah, very, very true. I, um, I've i written several songs, and I have a publisher that's out of New York, and mm-hmm. they seem to have the most success putting the songs on television shows and movies, and I'm okay with that. I mean, I've had a couple artists cut some songs, but nothing that is done as well as the stuff that I've put in TV shows and movies. I'm just curious, when you sync a song, do you also release it under your name? It was released under my name, but it went 100% through that publishing company at that point. Once they signed it, it was out of my hands. The credit, I mean, as an artist and everything, songwriting and artist, it was under my name. However, they controlled the sale of everything from that point forward. I had no say in it. And if I did, for some chance, get an artist to cut it, that publishing company would still receive their portion of the money. Okay. But you still get a percentage, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Split it 50-50 with the publishing company. Doesn't sound too bad. No, it wasn't bad. <laughs> Plus, they, they have more connections than I do. So, I mean, they put a song in, in Saturday Night Live, which was a big one for me. That song stayed alive for for years because that TV show reruns in so many different countries. So every time it would rerun, I would get a check in the mail. I was very excited about that. You know, and I was still fairly young at that time. So it was cool. But yeah, no, that publishing company, they're great people. And they've always been nice to me. And whatever I write, even to this day, they're always willing to publish it and put it in their library and try to do something with it for me. Very cool. Yeah, it was very cool. And even to this day... I mean, working in Nashville, you, you meet all these artists, and if an artist does happen to need a song when you're in the studio, you have songs that you can offer. Mm-hmm. And if they cut them, great. Now the publishing company still makes their 50% off that, but they're also the ones that track it. They're also the ones that handle all of the performing rights organizations, so I don't have to, to worry about any of that stuff. Very, very convenient. For sure. Yeah. But you mentioned your wife. Is she in the industry? She's not, but the reason why I do what I do is because you gave me her blessing and she encouraged it. Of course. So 
she's a she's a professor of all things. But so I, I think I think if she were in the industry, it may not have been as as encouraging. I think she probably likes that I do something completely different than what she does. So she doesn't have to hear about what she has to deal with the education world. Although I was in education a number of years. I pursued, I pursued like a stand, a typical nine to five type of job for a number of years, got all the degrees. And then I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> Back to music. Yeah, I don't like this. I only ask, I mean, I met my wife in the industry, but she was in a completely different area. She was in graphic arts and photography. So I was working for a production company. She was doing the photography and graphic arts for the artists that I was producing. Mm-hmm. So that's how I met her. But Still to this day, I mean, she she doesn't do that work anymore. But still to this day, and I'm wondering if it's the same for you. Anytime I ask my wife for an opinion, not only do I get an opinion, but it's a harsh opinion. I mean, she is willing to tell me, hands down, how bad something is or what needs to be changed or anything. She she holds no bars. Is your wife like that? Um, she's pretty frank. It's helpful. Like I, I don't want somebody who's just gonna like, just uh, always compliment the work. Yeah, I, I need to know like what needs to be corrected, and everybody's got a different opinion. But um, I know if she's happy, generally it's like worth releasing. And yeah, I just try to get, the, I just try to get as many opinions as possible before I release a tune because what sounds great to me, it could could suck to somebody else's ears. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Cause I'm not listening to, I'm not listening to a lot of like the top forties that other people are, are listening to. I'm listening to my, my own like niche of music. Well, that's cool. I mean, I, I understand it too. I mean, my wife, when I'm working on a, a mixing a song, say I get so buried into every little nuance within the song and she looks at it as a whole and she's like, Oh, I don't, you know, I don't like it. You know, well, why don't you like it? Give, give me some feedback here. And <laughs> she, she, she jumps in and critiques. So. So when that happens, that part of the conversation for me, it's like, but I worked like three hours on this part. I don't even right. care if it doesn't sound good. I just, it's got to go somewhere. Like it's my, my labor, you know? <laughs> so yeah. No, I mean, that's definitely true. I mean, and I don't admit it to my wife and hopefully she's not listening tonight, but she's usually right. So if she's telling me something is not feeling good to her, she's usually right. And I, and I correct it when you're working with artists in general i mean they make changes they make requests and changes all the time and when they do you know you might not agree with them all but you got to realize too when you're producing somebody else's record it's ultimately their name on the project it's what they want not what you want for sure especially when you're collaborating with other artists and it's their baby just as much as it is yours you know if it's like the case of if i produce 100 percent myself and then i run it by some fan i could be like well well i appreciate your opinion but i'm going to keep it the way it is with collab it's a different story and i did that like for instance with, with miserloo i um turned into a rock song the way i had it produced initially was more kind of rhythmically upbeat sort of like a fast more traditional type of klezmerish almost type of song and completely changed the vibe but you know what i'm glad i i'm glad i went along for the ride because it it was something that uh, people really love. Yeah, no, I could understand that too. I mean, that's the beauty of working with other people is they come up with ideas that you wouldn't have. 
And again, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not, but you're not going to know unless you try it. Yeah. It's that trust in a relationship. You have to trust the person you're collaborating with to tell you, I don't like it. Yeah. I worked with three producers in Nashville during my time there. I worked with more than that, but three main producers and two of them were very traditional. You go in the studio, they bring in an artist, you record that artist and you do whatever it is that that project needs. But one of the other producers I was able to co-produce with and was able to work with and make judgment calls and so forth. And it was definitely, you know, collaboration, 50-50 across the board with collaboration. And I wasn't used to that. And I don't know if he was either, but when we made those type of, you know, when you go in the studio and you make those type of calls, like I want to do it this way and they have another idea, it took a little while to get used to that. I mean, you're going in with two headstrong people and it takes a while to, to listen to it. But once you build that trust and you start listening to the other person and you start coming up with some pretty good stuff. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Well, let's go back to your session in the, in the studio here. You're recording, I'm assuming from what you're describing, you're recording most of that in your own studio. Is that correct? Uh, typically, yeah. Th these days I'm doing more in my own studio. I mean, I, I, I do work in other people's studios. I just, when it comes to the violin, I'm a lot more creative when I have unlimited time to just sort of record without distraction, without other people's input. I always end up with just better licks, better lines, um, better melodies. I actually find, I've, I've found, I've been rushed on different projects, probably because of cost, like oh, paying per hour. Sure. So that's tough. Like I'd almost, I, I kind of like when it comes to my melodies, I, I'd really prefer to work in my studio unless I'm just given like a lot of time to record. Well, tell me what that flow is like. So when it comes to a symphony, as of late, I've been... I've been laying down the melody with the keyboard and then it ends up sounding like way better with the violin is the melody. Um, just the, the dynamics and the inflections and everything. But I, I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm focusing on just quantizing everything, keeping everything like on rhythm uh, with the beat, with the click. So if I need to edit anything, you know, it's, it's just a lot easier to cut and cut and paste. But, but the, the root of what I'm building is from the MIDI piano uh, and the chord progression. And then I'm bringing in all the fancy strings and the winds and the percussion and just playing around with different, different sounds. And, you know, do I want to bring another musician, another instrumentalist uh, to kind of augment what I got, but I'm kind of building the structure myself, violin plus MIDI keyboard. That's like the majority my DAW Reaper. I love Reaper Apollo <laughs> twin. So. I was just going to ask you that next. You mentioned copy and paste. So that puts us in the digital world. So your DAW is Reaper. What is it you like about Reaper? I guess the programmability, the, um, the, first of all, I just spent countless hours. I've spent countless hours. So I'm just used to it. Um, and I'm just finding all sorts of just convenient shortcuts that I need when I've, I've got 50 channels open. It just gets really messy when you have a big production, just, putting things in envelopes and folders and, and just making things neat and coloring channels. So I guess 
just the interface is is useful to me as a composer as a producer i'm sure other daws are great um this is just something that i i just used to and a lot of people swear by it yeah no i mean i've worked in countless studios in in nashville in the the big studio world it's primarily pro tools yeah but i've worked in some of the production studios where they use all sorts of different pieces whether it's samplitude whether it's new window or cubase or any of those type of things when I was teaching at the schools, I used to tell people it's more about what you're comfortable with because it's just like a car. They all do the same thing. They all get you from point A to point B. It's just what features do you like in this car versus this car. And that's all these DAWs are and these consoles are. They're just your car to get you from point A to point B. Right. Now, I don't know if I would necessarily recommend Reaper um, starting out. I just know that I'm just sort of that's my game and it works for me. Cubase, a lot of people I know use Cubase and Logic and whatnot. Well, before I let you go, we have this thing here we call Unsung Heroes where we take a moment to shine the light on somebody behind the scenes. That doesn't typically get any credit. Do you have anybody you'd like to shine a little light on? Well, I happen to have just given my wife credit. She's really the reason why I do what I do and why my music exists. Because if it weren't for her, she hadn't given me her blessing, I would be a nurse <laughs> at this moment. <laughs> or I might have gone back to education, but... Two and a half albums under my belt now, thanks to her. And um, got to thank my parents for uh, for starting the journey for me at the age of two, two and change. So that's what comes to mind. Now, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Asher's journey is truly inspiring. So please join me and give him a big thanks for taking the time to share his stories with us. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can do that and find the links to everything mentioned over at jfranzi.com slash episode 33. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at jfranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528. 407-421-5528.